0: For your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you do not ever give up on us. What you have intended to do, you will accomplish. What you have set forth will be done. We thank you for that is a for our benefit. Help us now as we study your word to gain wisdom and insight that we may live lives which reflect your love for us and our respondent love for you. These things we pray in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, and as you turn there, let me just talk about a couple of things. One is, over the past few years, San Francisco Bible Church has embarked on a journey of creating a biblical counseling ministry here. Years ago, about seven years ago, when we, uh, in our family situation, we were looking for, uh, counseling. We found secular counseling, or what's called Christian counseling, which is really just, uh, secular counseling with a Christian veneer over it, and did not find that helpful at all. But we ended up looking further, and by God's grace, we happened upon the National Association of New Thetic Counselors at the time. Um, but they were named recently to the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. And during that time, we kind of looked at, you know, where's, where can we get, you know, true biblical counseling? And so we did that, and we found that there was a place in Petaluma, one in San Jose, and one across, across the bay in Walnut Creek. Nothing in San Francisco proper. So we said, you know, why isn't there something there? Couldn't there be something? Well, we went out to Walnut Creek, received some help in biblical counseling for a, a, a situation, and it really worked out that we began to see the, the value of counseling, which is based on the sufficiency of God's word, that God's word is sufficient for whatever circumstances we find ourselves. In so doing, we found that unlike the um, 300 psychologies of this world, that there is one true path through the word of God, through the spirit of God. And as we found that, as we relied on that, we began to embrace the idea of biblical counseling as, as a ministry that we should have at San Francisco Bible Church. So we've been working on that, and we're actually getting pretty close to to not necessarily, well, perhaps launching a, our, a formal program, but also we've been doing informal biblical counseling probably for the last three or four years uh, through receiving training at North Creek Church. When we look at biblical counseling, what it really is is discipleship. What it really is is focused discipleship on a specific problem or situation you may be experiencing in the life or the life of your family. And biblical counseling just brings together the truth of God and the Spirit of God in your life, guided by somebody who's probably been through it, uh, a biblical counselor has been trained, to the idea that they can help you understand and ha- the resources that God provides for you to resolve your situation. In the book of Romans, we... See God's plan of salvation. It starts off this way, and if you don't have to turn there, but in Romans chapter 1, Paul writes these words, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God, is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's verses 16 and 17. In the opening chapters, Paul makes a statement that the power of God for salvation, which is really also working out every situation in your life, is found in the gospel. That Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And by trusting in him, by believing in him, by holding on to the salvation he provides, we can have forgiveness of sin because our sin is applied to him and his righteousness applied to us. By trusting in him, by having faith in him, we can have eternal life. And that's the good news, isn't it? Our sins are forgiven. Every sin that you would have in your past, in your present, and in your future, every thought, every deed forgiven by God because it's been placed upon Jesus Christ. You know, that's that's great news. It's good news. And it is the gospel. And so everything seems to be working out pretty well in the book of Romans until you get to the latter part of this chapter. Well, By the time you get through verses 18 to 32 in the book of Romans, of chapter 1, you see that God's wrath. Is upon man. And then so much so that man has turned aside from God. Man has you know, given, up to, given himself to his own desires and lusts and cravings. Man has departed from God. To the point where Paul writes in the end of chapter 1. That man has exchanged the truth of God. For a lie. That man has in his own rebellion and sin. Chose to serve the creature rather than the creator. And so that. Is where man is. So much so that in chapters 2 and 3, Paul then describes the the sorry state of man in rebellion against God. Not only is man condemned under God's wrath, but he describes mankind this way in chapter 3. He says, There is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. All men do not understand. They do not seek after God. All they do, whatever they say, whatever they think, leads to violence, ruin, and misery. And we see that in our world, don't we? We see man left to his own ends will pursue destruction. Will pursue trying to get more stuff and taking away from other people. Men, in order to accomplish things, to get things done, to get what they want, will lie, will steal, will cheat. Things which they should not have, they'll go after. Things which they want, they'll do anything to get. They'll hurt other people. They'll hurt themselves. And in such a way that they've denied what God's plan is, what God wants. Even to the point where Paul says in chapter 3 of Romans that they do not fear God and man is worthless before God. When you look at this, you know, in chapter 3, we'd be kind of a, a t- bad state because man's situation would, before God, be hopeless. Man would be eternally condemned before God. And man couldn't do anything to help his situation. But in chapter 4 of the book of Romans, there's a light. And the light shows that there is righteousness of God which enables man to get out of his situation. The example is the faith of Abraham who believed God And it was accounted to him in his righteousness. And then there's a further light, a brighter light in chapter 5. Because although man is a sinner, as in chapters 1 to 3, although man has no hope, man is condemned before God because of our sin. It says here in in chapter 5, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, Christ's blood, much more shall we be saved by him, by Christ, from the wrath of God. For if while we're enemies, if while we're enemies, we were reconciled by God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. The the hope there is that because of God's love, even though we were sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we were wretched and worthless, without hope in this world, Christ died for you. Christ died for me. Chapter 6 tells us that we're no longer slaves to sin, that God enables us through his Spirit to do what's right. But Paul tells us in chapter 7 that there's a struggle. And Paul describes his own struggle that we still want to sin. We still want to do wrong things. We have desires to worship and serve ourselves. Our own thoughts, our own will, our own cravings, passions. We still have the desire within us rather than to serve God. So in chapter 8, we read these words which open the chapter. You know, when you think about how we are so far down, so far under God's judgment, Paul writes these words to give us hope. In chapter, one, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you think of the New Testament, those are some of the greatest words you can ever read. Because all throughout the scriptures, we're learning about the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the sinfulness of man, the hopelessness of man's situation. But here he says in verse 1 of chapter 8, there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whatever we could have had against us, God has set that aside. He's actually set it upon Jesus Christ and punished Jesus Christ on our behalf. More than that... In doing not only did he do that, but he took Jesus Christ's righteousness and applied it that to us second corinthians five twenty one you know that he who's, you know, who knew no sin was made sin so that we may be made the righteous, righteousness of God on his behalf. so in chapter eight continues that he says in verse two chapter eight, and then we'll, I'll get to our passage, don't worry for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, in, in Paul's day, if you were, you know, under the law, if you were trying to keep the Ten Commandments, or there's 613 positive and negative commandments in the, in, in the law itself, you couldn't do it. It's not a matter of your will, of you trying to be a better you, or me trying to be a better me. It's not about me trying to develop more discipline and regimen and, and isolating myself in some cave. It's not about that. It's not about trying to be a better person. It's about the fact that the law... Which told us what to do. Did not have the ability to save us. Did not have the ability to help us complete the law. For the law law here it says was weakened by the flesh. But what God did was. God sent his spirit. For he says. For God has done what the law. Weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Christ bore. Our sin in his flesh. That the the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And here's the point. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The rest of chapter 8 then describes the spirit. It is the spirit who gives life. It is the spirit who is in in opposition to our fleshly desires. It is the spirit of God who leads us. It is the spirit of God who does and enables us to do what God wants to do. It is the indwelling spirit that conquers the power of indwelling sin. The spirit works with our spirit to do what's right, to do what honors God, to live for the will of God. But then we have the question, how do you know this plan will work out? How do you know that God's going to accomplish everything he wants to do? I mean, you look at you look at the the beginning of the scripture, you look at Genesis 1. You see Genesis 1 and 2, where God created the perfect world with the perfect people. And you start saying, well, you know, that started out well, but then you hit chapter 3, and Satan entered the world and tempted mankind. And in so doing, man sinned and rebelled against God. And that's been escalating ever since. So much to a point where by the time chapter 3 goes and man has sinned, by the time you get chapter 6, Moses writes in Genesis chapter 6 that every thought upon man's heart was continually evil. To the point where God says, I've had enough, let's fix this. And he wipes out humanity in, in, in the flood, except for Noah and his family. How long did it take for them to get corrupted? And then he starts with Noah and the family says, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to wipe out the world through a flood again. And he lets history go on. And God's plan of redemption unfolds through, you know, through Abraham and Israel and through Moses and David. And eventually the new covenant through Jesus Christ. And once you look at that, you see God has a plan. God's working it out. But how do you know it won't fail like it, like it seemed to do in in Genesis 3? And it didn't fail. It was God's plan. But it's just, how do you know that God's going to accomplish everything he wants to do? Well, this section of scripture that we're studying kind of gives us the clue, gives us the hope. So in Romans chapter 8, And starting with, I'll start with 26, and we'll get to our passage starting in 28. It says in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us, with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, according to the will of God. What the Spirit is doing here and interceding with us in our hearts is is helping us understand what the will of God is. And it's interceding with God, God himself to say that this is what these believers are doing. This is what, you know, that you should send, you know, wisdom and and help to the believers. And the Spirit himself is the help for us. And then the words in verse, verse 828, and we've heard this many times and it's very helpful. It says, and we know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, as we look at this passage, we understand that it's for those who love God, all things work together for good. When we think of the term love, for, love, we think of you know this term is the as the term agape. And for those who have been in you know been in any of my classes, I could, it's not like a hobby horse, but it's kind of like that. There, there's there's certain you know certain issues of. It's almost like, um, Christian urban myth. Uh, talk about, people talk about the love of God or agape love, really, uh, as a term of agape love, they say is God's wonderful love. That is true when God is the one loving. That it is God's love. Cause it, it is, it stems from God. And that it is God's wonderful love. But the, the term agape, as you would know, really mean it's a, really a choice to love. It's actually a, a, a decision to love. It's, you are, making a decision that I will love this. It can be anything, you know, it, it can be something uh, as inconsequential as I love chocolate ice cream. I really do. I love chocolate ice cream. You know, I won't, you know, I won't do anything especially for it, but I'll go on my way to get chocolate ice cream. I also like chocolate declares, too. You see a pattern? Things like that. And these are things that you you like, you decide to love, because I've met people who don't like chocolate ice cream. I mean, yeah, sure, you know, you're thinking those people actually exist. But the idea is that I have decided to love it. I've decided to love the, the texture, the flavor, things like that. And you look at the quality of something, you decide to love it. In chapter 3 of John, John three sixteen, God so what? Loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Go three verses later, man has loved darkness rather than light. God agape the world that he gave his own son. Man agape darkness rather than light. The term means to love, to choose to love, the will to love. It's not God's wonderful love unless God is the one loving. Agape in itself is a choice to love. And here that's important here because when we look at those who love God, it's those who have chosen to love God. Those who, by their act of the will and their mind and their hearts, have decided to set their heart upon God and look at the characteristics of God, the person of God, the plan of God, the purposes of God, the actions of God, and decided because of those things reveal who God is, they've decided to love God. They made it a choice to love this God. And it's those who love God where God is the object of their love, it's a response to his love, at that, for those people, and it's all believers, I believe, those wings, God works all together, things all together for good. And we understand that not all things are good, are they? There's calamity, there's hardship, there is evil in this world. But God orchestrates all these things. God is weaving the events and circumstances of our life to work it out for his glory. For his purposes. God sovereignly orchestrates. Even the sour notes of our lives. To be a symphony. To his praise. You know one of these things that you start thinking about. And and I gave this example earlier. In the the previous service. And this is an example that really stands out to me. And is an example of. Of God working out things together. For good. And it's the idea here of. um, You guys have heard. And I know you've heard this illustration before. But. The, you know, like uh, Pastor Chan, our Cantonese pastor, you know, you know some years back, you know, he was hit by a car. You guys remember that? Yes? Yeah, it, and is it a good thing to be hit by a car? No, it's not, it's not something you would go for. You know, no, hey, what's you, what you, you know, on your bucket list? What do you want to do before you die? I want to get hit by a car. Okay, sure. You know, I, we can do something like that. Here, come out to the parking lot. No, it's like, okay, you don't believe that. So, so, you know, Pastor B. Chan got hit by a car and it just happened to be Halloween night. Evening, and it was getting dark. The kids were coming out. He lives in a good neighborhood. He doesn't live where I live. You know, in my neighborhood, the kids don't go out at night, even on Halloween. You know, they just, they go to the good neighborhoods. And so they, they were. He lives in a pretty good neighborhood, and they were walking around. And it's getting you know starting to get dark. So there were lots of kids out there, a lots of parents. So much so that you know, Pastor Chan taking his evening stroll got hit by a car. <gasps> not good, right? Right. It's not good. Okay. Not yes. It's not good. Okay. And so what happened was, is that he got hit by a car, but it was Halloween night, and so there were a lot of people on the street. There's a lot of people to see it. So they run up to him, help him, call 911 when the ambulance comes, and they take him to the hospital to see what's happened. Now, he is hurt, yeah, but it's not a life-threatening hit. So it was it was good. And you say to yourself, well, how's God going to work that out? Well, of course, as you know, when they, he's a man of advanced age, they do a battery of tests on him. And what they found is not just the injury from the car, they found cancer. They found cancer at the very beginning stages. So much so that had he had not been hit by a car, they would have not known about his cancer till it had been advanced you know, so, so much further. The actual incident of getting hit by a car may have saved part of his life. God works all things together for good to, the, to those who love God, to those who are called to go his purpose. And so you see how what seems to be hard on one's circumstances in the beginning, God weaves it for good. God makes it out. And what seems to be a hardship, a tragedy at one time, God can make something of it. And that's our expectation. That God is weaving all these things together for good. And then he goes on. For those who are called according to his purpose. We understand that God causes, calls people to himself. God has chosen people for himself. And this idea of choosing has to do with uh, those whom God has identified beforehand. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 tells us that God chose us before the foundation of the world. Before God created one Adam on this earth, before God created one person, He chose you uniquely, individually, personally to be His child if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You've been called by God. And it's not one of those calls where, all, you know, I'll come when I can. It's God says, come now, and he saves you. And God has called us, it's, the verse says, according to his purpose. God has a reason for calling us. God doesn't make you a Christian so that you can try to be a better person. God has a purpose for your life. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24 give us one example. He tell, John writes there that God is seeking those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. One of the purposes of God calling you isn't that you would just have a better life or more fun or this, or just even to have your sins forgiven. God has a purpose that you would worship Him in spirit and in truth. Paul goes on in this passage. It says in verse 29... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the idea that God foreknew us, and he, like I said before in Ephesians one four that he chose us. He knew us ahead of time. He chose us individually. He also predetermined that you, you, and I would be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. What God wants to do is to build within us, in our hearts, in our minds, in our our thoughts, that the image of Christ, the character of Christ. Paul writes in in Colossians twenty eight that. His goal in ministry is to present every believer complete in Christ. That God's focus for you isn't just to save you and leave you, or even to move you around. God has an end goal for your life. And how are you moving toward that? That you would be complete in Christ. Ephesians 4.13 describes it as attaining to to the measure measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is uh, attaining to the character of Christ. To a mature person, to think like as Christ thought, to act as Christ would. And when we think about that, God is, is making you not just to live like Christ, and this is like that, the movement that was sometimes, some time ago, you know, the WWJD, you know, they had rings, baselets, they had pamphlets, they had everything. And the idea was, you know, it wasn't a bad idea, it was what would Jesus do? And the idea there was to replicate the actions of Jesus. To think like Jesus would. And what would Jesus do in this situation? And that's a good idea. That actually is a good thought. But God is going beyond that. He's not just going for the actions of what Jesus would do. He's looking for character. It's it's Because you and I could do the right thing for the wrong reason, right? You could. You and I could be nice to people because we want to get something from them, right? You and I can show... Kindness or goodness because other people are watching us like the Pharisees of those days and we want their praise. We can do the right thing for the wrong reason. God isn't looking for that. God is looking for the image of Christ in us. He's looking for the character in the way we live, the the way we think, the values that we hold. That's God's goal for us. And it says so much so that God has predetermined that we would be made Conformed, he says, to the image of Christ. We would be molded into the image of Christ. That Christ himself would be like the firstborn among many brothers. That we would be in sequence to to Christ. We would be like Christ. When you look at us and you look at Christ, you would say they're family. There's a family resemblance. They would see the character of Christ in us and that we would know that we belong to him. And then in the next verse, and it says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. The idea of justified, of course, means to be declared righteous. So God calls us, he calls us to himself, but he declares us righteous. Not because we ourselves are righteous, but because Jesus Christ himself is righteous. And his righteousness has been given to us. We haven't earned it. It's simply been given to us. And those who have been declared righteous, what God is doing, he's glorifying. And this glorification has to do with the ultimate redemption of your body, which lies in the future. 1 Corinthians 15 describes it as being changed in the twinkling of an eye, where mortality takes on immortality, which perishable takes on imperishableness. And that idea of being glorified means that God has now taken our sinful flesh and changed it into perfection. That's where God is, and that's what God is doing. So you say to yourself, okay, I can see what's happening. God is working together all things together for good, those who love him. And then he describes how God has a plan that not only leads from taking us from a sinful state, but to a glorified state. I can see that. But how do you know that's going to be completed? How do you know that's going to be finished? Well, he says there, you know, cause some people can say, well, you know, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. I mean, you can try, you know, you know, just look around you. I've seen Christians throughout the ages who claim to know God, who claim to honor God. Well, you know, like they're just, they're just, they're just like, you know, they're crusaders. They're just like these guys who pretend to follow God and really don't know God. And what's so good about knowing God anyway, they would say. So, you know, like, and, and there would be all sorts of ideas about, dis, you know, disparaging remarks about Christians. So, you know, like, if God is doing all these things, working together for good, glor- about to glorify us, what if people say things about us? So he says there in verse 31, What, sh- what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In a series of questions beginning in verse 31, Paul is telling about those who say, who can you know, bring up questions about what God will do. And the idea here is that when he says, What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? Who can oppose God? Who can stop God from doing what God wants to do? And the idea there is no one can stand against God. If God has decided that he will do it, who is one can oppose God? And I often like, you know, I I like visual images, and I've used this image before, because it it really resonates with me. It's like taking a ping pong ball and throwing it against the steel door of a bank vault. Have you seen steel, you know, you've seen pictures and images of steel vaults, right? They're like three or four feet thick of just solid steel. And you've seen ping pong balls, you know, the mighty ping-pong ball. And you take a ping-pong ball and you throw it against a steel door, what happens? You know, does the st- steel door collapse? If I had, you know, what if I had more ping-pong balls? What if I had a whole box of five ping-pong balls? I mean, it's a lot of balls. I keep throwing them around there. When will it, how many ping-pong balls will it take to knock down the steel door? You'll never do it, Dale. And You're right. Because that's why I see is, who can stop God? It'd be like throwing a ping-pong ball against a steel door. You can oppose God all you want, but you will never defeat him. So that's what, he, that's what he's implying here is: If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There are very few things in your life that you can find that you're willing to give up your life for. But there's probably absolutely nothing you're willing to give up the life of your son or your daughter for. There's very few things that you would say if you give up a family member and you would put them on, you know, you would sacrifice them for some other person or for some other cause or reason. Probably not. But God gave up his own son for us the worthless people of chapter 3, the condemned people of chapter 1, he gave up his son for us. Having given up his son, don't you think he'd be willing to give up other things? It's the argument from the greater or the lesser, right? That he's willing to give up the greatest thing that, he, that God has, which is his own son. Everything else is much more smaller in value. And he says there, he who did not give up, you know, spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The one who gave up his son to take away for your sin, don't you think he can give you peace in this life? Don't you think he can give you joy in this life? Don't you think he can give you a mate if he wants to give you a mate? Don't you think he can give you a children if he wants to give you children? Don't you think he can give you hell if he wanted to? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not Give us generously everything else. Not that we want things or stuff. It just shows the depth of God's love for us. Verse 33, another set of questions. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The term charge there means to accuse. It's simply just an accusation. If somebody says, oh, you did this. Well, it's, 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 you know, it's, how do you know? How are you going to prove it? It's just a matter of, oh, you know, people can accuse you of a lot of things, but unless there is evidence or proof, that it's just just an accusation. It's just words. But here the response is that who shall bring any charge? Who shall accuse God's people, God's elect? The answer is it is God who justifies. It is God who declares righteous. It is God who has declared you righteous because of his son, Jesus Christ. They can accuse you of all things, of your own personal sin, your own personal failure, failure. But it is God who has forgiven you. It is God who has placed your sin on Jesus Christ. It is God who declares you righteous. But he goes on in verse 34. Who is condemned? Who is to, who's going to condemn us? And then the, the, word, the Greek word is stronger. Where the first one was accused just means to make a verbal accusation to somebody. The idea of condemning is to pronounce judgment. It's something a judge would do. He's saying, I declare this person guilty. It's not this person did the wrong thing. This person is guilty of this and should be done, something done to them. But the idea of condemning lies solely with God. Because he says there in verse 34, Christ is the one who died. See, the condemnation for our sin is deserves what? Death. Your sin, my sin, deserves death. Because of our sin against God. Did someone die for your sin? Yes, if you trusted in Jesus Christ. So it is Christ who has died. Christ has already been condemned, not us. Christ was condemned on our behalf, but it says more than that, who was raised. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that everything Jesus said was true. And not only that, in Acts chapter 17, the resurrection is proof to all men everywhere That God will judge. And the idea here is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Also shows that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. The resurrection is that he is now also at the right hand of God. Seated with God as God. To the point where he's now interceding for us. He's now looking over to the Father and saying, yes, that person is sinning. But I paid for that sin. And that sin has been accounted for. And there is no more judgment for that sin because that one's done. Well, they keep doing it. It's not good, but I still pay for that sin. But this is the hundredth time they've done it this month. I know, but I still pay for that sin. Although the accuser may come and stand against us, it is Jesus Christ who is interceding for us. So you understand that God is working all things together for good. And that God that no one can bring a, a, a condemnation against us and you say why? Why can why you know why can God determine that he's gonna do this? Why can people not you know can can make accusations and condemnation against believers and they still don't stick? Why? What what's the purpose of this? Well this This comes about when the last part of this chapter, Paul writes these words. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And that's the question he he begins to answer. The idea of who or the term can also be translated what. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? And and note here that he's not saying who can separate us from from Christ himself. He says, he says, what can separate us from God, Christ's love for us? It's not just he's separating us from Christ, but he separate. who can separate us from God's affection, God's choice, choosing to love you? What can separate you from God's love? What can separate God from you and his love for you? What, you know? Is there anything in the world that can separate it? Well, he answers that question. He says, shall tribulation? And tribulation generally means the trouble or anguish. It just means that things that, the unfortunate circumstances of your life. He says, shall distress. Distress has the, and the Greek term has a term of being trapped. You know, it's like, it's that mime in the box. You ever see the mime in the box? You know, he's going like this, you know, like that. The person's trapped, and you feel trapped by your circumstances. Maybe you don't have enough money to pay your bills. Maybe you don't, you don't have enough credits to graduate. Maybe the pressures at work are so overwhelming that you just feel stuck. You don't know where to go. You're you just you're in distress because you don't see any way out. If you're in that circumstance of life, should that should that circumstance stop God from loving you? He's saying, "What about persecution? You know, and that's the opposition that people have toward you. They're in your face. They're attacking you. They're subverting what you're trying to accomplish. You're you're, you're sensing that there are people that are just opposed to you." How about famine, the lack of food? I mean, it's, you know, it, it's hard to go hungry. I mean, for some of us, it's four or five hours. Wow. You know, I haven't eaten in hours. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to waste away here. You know, and it's not. You know, normally, you know, we don't have famine in our area. You know, we have drought, and we normally, drought and famine kind of go together, but we have a good farm system, and I eat, you know, you know, I eat bananas and chili or whatever, You know things like that. There's there's somewhere there's water and there's somewhere there's food, and we have a good transportation system. The lack of food is is a very difficult circumstance. And in those days, in a place where you can't get food, it's a very harsh circumstance. It's a life or death circumstance. How about nakedness? Whereas famine is lack of food, nakedness is the lack of clothing or shelter. It's it's being in a desperate state where you don't have what you need to protect yourself from the elements. That's what nakedness is. How about danger? How about if you're in a perilous situation? A situation where, you know, things could go wrong very quickly. Things could go bad very quickly. I mean, you don't have to be standing next to a volcano to to understand peril. You can just be going, you can just turn down the wrong street and be in a tough situation. I mean, I was, you know, like years back, you know, the one time I went to, 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 to Israel, to Jerusalem, you know, we were kind of, we, you know, we weren't that smart. We know it was, it was, it was free day. You know, you just do whatever you want. And we went with our, you know, kids. and we with another family. And we're, we're going down these roads. And we turned off the main road. And then we all of a sudden got in this little section of, of Jerusalem where you probably shouldn't go. Because uh, usually, you know, if you're in the major parts of Jerusalem, there's, there's usually police officers and military police standing around everywhere. You know, and they're, they're carrying around. Their, they have automatic weapons and everything everywhere, plain view. It's, it's Israel. And, and so what happens is we go down this wrong street, and all of a sudden I don't see anything anybody that looks, you know, th- that I would know. And then you start seeing people come out of the doors approaching you. Kind of wondering, what, they, what oh look, here's some strangers that are isolated. And we quickly, you know, walked away, and, and you know, and the way that, the, 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 you know, that's the only thing I've come close to being a very perilous situation, whereas, you know, I'm, you know, we're one step away from something happening to us. We're dumb Americans. No, what do you want? You know, and we're just, but fortunately, we walked down the street. We started seeing a, a, a place where it looked like a movie therapy. Well, got there before anybody approached us, got to us, and got back into the flow of traffic where no one's going to do anything because there are police standing everywhere. And so you get to that perilous situation where you don't know what's going to happen, whether or not you're going to get out. And God, even there, is still loving you. Sword. If you live in a day where Rome was overall and soldiers were everywhere and centurions were about, you would understand sor- soldiers and armies. If you live in a certain part of our world today and you're a Christian, you understand military as well. If you're in various parts of China or in Vietnam or other nations where are highly opposed to Christianity, whether it's communism or Muslim, uh, Islam... You understand the opposition of sword against you. So much so that Paul writes in verse thirty six, he quotes Psalm forty four twenty-two. He says, and is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The application of the sword, Paul tells us here, is that we as believers, we as in trust in Christ, are still dealing with the Romans one world, those who are in opposition to God. Those who hate God, those who have rejected God are the people in which around which we live, right? Our society. And they're not friendly toward God to the point where we are in, at some time maybe killed all the day long like sheep led to water. And that's the reality of living in this world. That you as a Christian may suffer persecution for what you believe. Not because of your offensive. Not because you conduct yourself any way that draws attention to yourself. Just because of what you believe is an offense to what other people believe. And you will find at times maybe perhaps opposition. So the, the, the answer to the question of what shall separate us from the love of Christ. And then he lists all those things. He says, how about this? How about that? How about this? How about this? Paul answers it in verse 37. in a resounding no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, no, even in, even in death we are victorious. It says, and that term that's translated more than conquerors is a single Greek term that actually means hyper-victorious. It it means not only victorious, but a a victory that goes beyond victories. It's the height of victories. It is the, you know, it it is super-victorious. It's not like, oh, we just barely won, like the Warriors did three points last night. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to mention that. They were hit by, what, 11 with a minute and a half to go. Come on, please, don't lose them. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, they, you know, but the idea, I, I, I want to, give, you know, I'm sorry, this is a teaching moment. For those who are in my class next semester about teaching, that is you want to, you want to draw a, a quick anecdotal note that will resonate with people, and then you just do that. And that kind of brings them back in the last ten minutes of your sermon, okay? That's a, you know, that's, that's a parenthetical note I just want to give to you, okay, for those who are learning how to teach. Okay, so it's like, and that also brings it back to the attention. It kind of breaks you off track, now you got to get back on the subject. So you watch me how I do this, okay? That the idea is that you are more than a conqueror. You're just not barely winning. You're super winning. For even if you die, you go into the presence of God. Even if you suffer harm, physical harm, it only lasts as your body lives and your body will die. It's only a matter of time, right? He says then in verse 38, he goes through a series of, of hyperbole, and it says, for I am, ne- I am sure that neither death nor life, he starts from the point of death, which is our end, and life, which is our beginning, and everything in between. If you, if you begin at death at the end, or you begin at the beginning, everything in between your life, either death or life, nothing will self separate you from the love of Christ. Well then, how about angels or rulers? The idea of of angels, You know, if you think about it in the Old Testament, you start realizing that even these powerful angelic beings, and in the book of the Kings where it talked about how one single angel killed 186,000 invading marauders against Jerusalem. Then in a single night, one angel did that. And you can imagine thousands upon thousands of angels about. That God has created. You put them all together and they can kill billions of human people. Of human beings. They could not separate you from the love of God. If, you, if all the angelic powers of, of, of heaven got together. And tried to separate God from his love. From you. They could not do it. You might as well bring out your ping pong balls. They could not do it. And it says not even rulers on the earth. You grab every president of every country, every emperor, every dictator, every governor, every potentate, every senator, you know, whatever it is, you get them all together, and they all agree that they're going to separate you from God's, God's love. They could not do it. You know, you can stack them all on top of one another. They can't do it. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. How about things present or things to come? How about things right now? Is there anything in this world that can separate you from God's love? How about the things to come? I mean, technology is always evolving. You know, maybe there's something technological, you know, thing advanced that can separate you from God's love. No, nothing present, nothing to come can separate you from God's love. Powers, nor powers, they can't separate you. Those are, you know, it's a term used of the miraculous events that Jesus did in his day. I mean, whether it's, you know, healing a person, casting out a demon, you do all this. You can add up all the powers in the world. They cannot separate you from God's love for you. Nor height, nor depth. Sp- spatial distance, whether you're up. You, I mean, you can be up in Mars with Matt Damon if you wanted to be. You, know, and you can out there, you know, he's no longer there, I heard. And you go out there, you know, go to Mars, God's there. You go down to the darkest, deepest part of the ocean, God's there. God's love is there for you. It doesn't matter where you are physically. God's love will be there. And just so we don't forget anything, just so we think there's some exception, he says, nor anything else in all creation. There's nothing in creation that can separate you from God's love. There's nothing there. There's no animal. There's no being. There's no tree. There's no mountain. There's no river. There's... Nothing out there that can separate you from God's love. Nothing, he says, can separate us, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are condemned in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapters 4 and 5 talks to us about the the possibility of God loving us and God did love us. So much so that he sent his own son to be the penalty for our sin. Chapter 6 talks about that we're now to present our lives as as our members, our bodies, as instruments of righteousness no longer sin. But in chapter 7, Paul talks about his own struggle with sin. And about how hard it is. So much so that he comes to the end of chapter 7 and he says... In his in his, in his in his mind, his spirit, he wants to honor God, but in his body, he finds himself sinning. He says, well, who can deliver me from this body of death? And the answer comes in chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's the answer, Christ Jesus. But not only that, in chapter 8, he talks about the Holy Spirit living within us. It is the Spirit of God inside you, which enables you to overcome the sin which plagues all of us. But lest we lose hope because of the, because the repetitiveness of our sinful ways against God. No matter what we do, for those who love God, God will work all things together again. Well, what if my sin? God will work that out. What if I do this? Well, God will work that out. God will just weave it in to make rightness in your life. So much so that God's, God's intent on making you into the image of Jesus Christ, will not stop. He will not fail. He will not give up. Nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord. He will continue to move. There is nothing in this world. His love for you is unstoppable. It's undeniable. Chapters 9 to 11 answer the question, what about Israel? Because if God's love is so great like this, unstoppable, undeniable, what about Israel? Didn't God choose Israel? Well, Paul tells us in chapters 9 to 11 that God has a plan for Israel. God's love for Israel has not stopped either. God will consummate his plan for Israel. Then in chapter 12, Paul continues the thought that ended in chapter 8. If God's love for us is unstoppable and undeniable, if God's love for Israel is that way too, what's our response? What's our reaction to God's love? He writes these words in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, which many of you know. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. The ministry of biblical counseling is this. is that the love of God for 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 all of us, which is unstoppable and undeniable, will continue. The role of biblical counseling is to do in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. To use God's love for you, to, to base your life on the love for God. God has loved you so much that the only thing you can do is respond. We love him, why? Because he first loved us. So our response of love to him is in a life in which our minds are being transformed, renewed, because we want to be like him. He has determined that we will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He's moving us unceasingly in that direction. And so through the ministries of San Francisco Bible Church and including the the children's ministry, Sunday school, mercy ministry, the fellowship groups, and biblical counseling, we're moving people in that direction. We all start at the same point. We We see God's love for us, and we respond with a love for him. And that's the mission that lies before us every day of our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave up himself willingly, that we may be made the righteousness of him through your power, through your spirit. We pray as we embark on that every day to learn to love you more, to live the life of Christ out in this world, to tell others of Christ, to declare your glory wherever we go and whatever we do. We just want to thank you for your love, which never stops. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.